This episode of The Spiritually Sassy Show was brought to you by Higher Dose. Elevate your mood, promote a healthy glow, support long-term health benefits, and lift your spirit with Higher Dose's at-home wellness tools that use nature-inspired technologies to release a dose of your feel-good chemicals like dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins naturally. Higher Dose's infrared, PEMF, and red light devices elevate your health and beauty rituals while their collection of body products boosts the benefits so you feel more rejuvenated, refreshed, grounded, and glowing. Ready to test the best biohacking technologies and feel better daily? Visit higherdose.com and enter the code SAW15 to save 15% on your first order. That's higherdose.com and enter the code SAH15 to save 15% on your first order and prepare to get high on your own supply. And now, on to the show. What's up, my loves? Oh my goodness. Hi. Welcome back to Spiritually Sassy Show. It's such an honor to be here with you today. Thank you for listening to the podcast, by the way. Thank you so much for helping to make the podcast a success. Thank you for, for listening to our sassy, our spiritually sassy perspective. I love you for that. Today's guest is someone that I am truly starstruck, someone that I'm I'm in awe that when we reached out to her about being on the show, she was like, yep, would love to. I love Sa's work. I fell off the chair when my team sent me that reply that she sent back. I was like, oh my God, thank you so much. Her work has touched me really deeply. Her work has been a, a point of reassurement. Is that even a word? Reassurance? I think that's the word. But it was just, in any case, really reassuring that I'm living, you know, the the modern mystical life, that it is a wild path. It's a very um, radical path. And her work has brought a lot of clarity that I'm okay, that my my path is is the right path for me and and everything's going to be okay. So for everyone listening, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. What if everything works out for you, my darling? Okay, enough talking. Let me get into let me get to introducing you to this legendary icon, Mirabai Star. She's an award-winning author and creative non-fiction and contemporary translations of sacred literature. She taught philosophy and world religions at the University of New Mexico Taos for 20 years and now teaches and speaks internationally on contemplative practice and inter-spiritual dialogue. She's a certified bereavement counselor. Mirabai helps mourners harness the transformational power of loss. Her latest book, Wild Mercy, Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women Mystics. It was named one of the best books of 2019. Guys, that book is the book that I'm telling you about. You need the book that brought so much reassurance. I almost said reassurement again, but reassurance to my life. This is the book, Wild Mercy. Uh, She lives with her extended family in the mountains of northern New Mexico. Enjoy the show. And again, if you love the podcast, please subscribe, rate, review, share with your friends. Love you so much. I love you so much. Well, 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 I am starstruck to be in your presence. It is truly an honor and a profound joy. I can't say enough about how how much your work has touched my life. Oh, I feel like I'm going to cry again. Um, So thank you. Thank you for everything you've done. Thank you for everything you continue to do for us. Thank you for living in such profound integrity and and helping us all awaken our hearts in such a beautiful, beautiful and wild way, you know? <laughs> so thank you. Welcome to the show, Mirabai. Thank you, Sa. The, the honor is mutual. Believe me. <laughs> thank you so much. Okay, so the first question I ask every guest is, who are you right now? 
Well, like so many of us, it's it's a fluid kind of identity because so many structures are collapsing. And I think our, our identities, like everyone I know, mm-hmm. our identities are melting too. And, and so um, I'm willing to be in that puddle right now and, mm-hmm. and not know who I am, but that's not really what you're asking. You're kind of asking, you're asking where, so like, where am I locating myself? And I would say it's very much in the fire of the suffering of the world. Mm. Like whether I like it or not, that's where I'm finding myself. I'm, I'm showing up. It's not easy and I'd rather not, but that is where I'm finding myself right in the midst of the flames. Mm. Thank you for that. And for, for people who are, who are, curious about like, what does that mean to be right in the, in the, in the thick of the flames? Cause I, you know, there's this empathetic resonance where we feel the suffering of others and then people un- unconsciously choose to turn a blind eye because it activates their own suffering. They feel the suffering of another, but it, it, it unfortunately sprouts their own seeds of suffering in the karmic garden of their mind. And then they're, they're like, uh, uh-uh, I can't do this. But how do we feel the fire and allow this empathetic, this evocative empathy that we're feeling the fuels of the world, the fire that's happening, burning all around us? And how do we bridge that into compassion where it leads to action? Because I think in this in this movement of, of calling ourselves, I'm an empath, what I hear often and what I hear when I hear that, it's spiritual bypassing. It's a way to say, I have these wall this this fortress around me of boundaries and i'm i'm not willing to like be flexible and i'm not willing to go to towards the difficulty because unfortunately it triggers my own um fears and despair you know but how do we go from this empathetic resonance that we all have that power but the superpower in my view is when you can turn that into compassion where it leads to an opportunity for us to help each other through the through the despair through the discomfort right oh exactly i love that that you named the spiritual bypassing aspect of this this empathy movement you know it's sometimes just like the next cool thing to call yourself and okay so here's the trick i uh-huh. think when mm-hmm. you ask that question it's to not see ourselves as other than those other people who are suffering, you know, to not otherize the sufferers any more than we have an impulse to otherize the so-called perpetrators. Mm. Actually, not just intellectualize our oneness with each other, but connect to it. So Mm -hmm. when when I experience the suffering of people I love, people in my family, people in my community. And then, you know, the children in Uvalde in Texas or, you know, the the people in in Buffalo, New York, or in Ukraine or in Africa, South America, all the the zones that are the hottest on the planet right now that that we know about because we're, we're all connected through, you know, through social media. I... I endeavor to connect with the place inside of me that is most tender. And I try to respond from that place rather than some idea of, well, we're all interconnected. So I'm just going to allow myself to act compassionately toward the others. You know, my, my lifelong teacher was Ram Dass and he, he talked a lot about social action being coming from a place of not dispensing your spiritual alms to those poor people, um, but recognizing our essential connectedness that it's mm-hmm. all of us. Mm-hmm. That helps mm-hmm. me out a lot. Not only does it help me, so I can't help but feel that. I don't know. Maybe it's the years of meditation. I'm not sure what. Maybe it's all the suffering I've done, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I know there's more to come. Um but it's it's not possible for me to separate myself. Mm-hmm. I love that. It's something that's been coming up for me uh, recently too. It's it's looking at at, at ourselves like we like the trees in a the forest. They look separate on the outside, but the roots are deeply connected. So we look separate with the eyes in our face, but our hearts 
are deeply connected. And it's, it's very, um, it, it really does take a brave heart to recognize that we're a social body, that we are interconnected, that we are, you know, as Thich as the interbeing, yeah. you know, that your suffering is my suffering, my happiness is your happiness. As I heal, you heal. As you suffer, I suffer. Um, and in the in the world of the of the you know I call uh, spiritual bubblegum world or like bubblegum spirituality or and I don't mean to to you know to talk down on it, but I'm just saying it's such a limited view of staying individuated, of staying separate, and the you know, the highest truth on the spiritual path we know, I mean, it's, it's really to recognize that we are deeply connected and it's really, it does, like I said earlier, it does take this really, you know, hard look to, to see somebody suffering on the street and not turn a blind eye. I remember I was living in Bali a, a few months ago. And one thing that made me so angry, it was seeing all these white people coming out of these fancy restaurants and seeing all these women in this little village that I lived in Bali, Ubud, mm. the vast majority of the, of the unhoused community were women with kids mm. on their, on their arms. And part of my daily practice was to go to the ATM, get some money and, and just have it ready, you know? And part of my practice was to also like put together a, a nice meal write some mantras on a, on a brown paper bag and offer it to them. And, and what made me so angry is to seeing all these, you know, wealthy white people coming out of these restaurants and literally these women are saying, help me. And they just literally would pretend that these people are not there. Yeah. And I found myself like in anger, massive anger. And I've just been kind of looking, what is this anger? Is it because I have, you know, it, like, am I, have I neglected them in, in some past life or have I neglected them in the, in the earlier part of my life? Yes to both. I think, you know, um, can you comment on this, on that anger that comes up when we see people not doing the thing that we, that we think is the most beneficial thing to do, which in this case, it is to actually offer them money. This island has been closed off because of COVID. The vast majority of the businesses were closed. Now, there's a lot of the Western um, people who've, who've made a home in Bali and, and opened the business. So they're thriving still during COVID. But a lot of the Balinese people were in extreme suffering. And then they were saying, don't ride around with your phone on your oh, with your phone on your on your scooter to see the directions. Don't wear jewelry. Don't do this. Don't do that. And I and I just found myself being in a car with these. I went to a free diving course. And mm. I found myself in a car with these people saying all this stuff. And I just found myself feeling like nauseous of so much anger. Like they're not a they're not understanding that that crime is happening because they're being greedy with their resources. You know what I mean? So can you comment on that and, and excuse my rant there? I just felt like it was alive a and mean and I wanted to get your perspective on it. Oh, I so appreciate your passion around justice and equity. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, needed. And I think that's, that leads me to my response, which is for you to model it, for all of us to model the world that we want to see. Because when we lecture people, not that you were, but I'm sure you wanted to, and I don't blame you. Yes. But I wanted to scream on a megaphone. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, what are you not doing? So um, when we try to tell people the way it is, they shut down and they put up their defenses, right? If we try to talk to people about gun control who are NRA um, supporters, They've got their their walls are already in place, and all we're doing is is reinforcing them, mm -hmm. you know, with our progressive little diatribe. I mean, I'm noticing that this is the phenomenon when people try to tell me, like, "What the fuck are you doing? What are you, you know, wake up about something?" You know, for instance, anti-racism work. So I've been actively engaged in anti-racism work for the last ten years, long before it was, um, you know, that there was the word woke was being thrown around. Yeah. And my, what was happening for me is I was seeing in these white spiritual spaces that I was inhabiting where I was teaching and speaking such a, a stark lack of diversity. 
and 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 the specter, the shadow of white supremacy was mm-hmm. so clear to me. Mm-hmm. And it and I saw it in myself. You know, even mm-hmm. though I grew up in an extremely progressive Jewish family of social activists, where I thought, you know, there wasn't a sh- couldn't possibly be a shred of racism or, or white supremacy. I knew when I was seeing it in these in these spiritual communities that I had to start with myself and uprooting mm. it, taking a look at it. So when someone says to me now, like, um, you know, suggesting that I am I am racist or or that I am in some way unconscious of issues of of diversity, equity, inclusion. It pisses me off. It makes me defensive. I immediately erect a wall. There's no way I'm going to let them lecture me. I just shut it down. Mm-hmm. Right. So I know that that's human nature because I do. If it happens in me, it and I've done a lot of work mm-hmm. on trying to identify my triggers. Right. Then it's going to happen in everyone. So how how do we transfer that impulse to pick up the megaphone and yell? at people to wake them up mm-hmm. into how do I be an effective luminary, you know, exemplar for change in everything I do and am? Mm-hmm. How do I deliver those beautiful brown paper bags with food in them, with mantras written on them? I love that. That image will stay with me forever, Sa. Um, in such a way that it it shifts the way people see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just know that we have to keep showing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and you are actually a really beautiful example of this mm-hmm. because your spiritually sassy way <laughs> is hard to miss. Oh, thank you. And I was talking to uh, Dr. Lisa Miller on the podcast recently about the theory of entrainment. Mm-hmm. And she talks about the fact that if 2% of the world lives not as loving, but as love, where everything that isn't loved inside of them makes itself known to be loved. So they're just this emanation of love, right? It's a lot of work to get to that place. And I feel like, you know, I get glimpses of it. I get like stable glimpses of that, of that gnosis that I'm living as love. There's not even like I'm living as love or like, oh, look at that being, being, being loved. There's just love. You know, there's no observer. It's just this loving awareness, as, as our beloved Ram Das would say. And, and she says, if 2% of the world lives as love, then we can change global consciousness. That, that through research, she's seen that it takes 100, it will take 140 million people for us to actually, you know, um, flip go, global consciousness Right. And, and and enter into that that space, you know. And I find that number really, really big. But I find that number kind of like uh, I find there's 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 harmony and there's grace in knowing that there is a solution, there is a potential, you know, for us to get to that place. And and as I ask you the question, I'm just reminded of what she said, and I'm reminded in my own life that it's really like model. Like live as, you know, as um, live as generosity and see and just like it's not even see what happens because we don't it, looking for outcomes. It's not part of what we want. It's not it's unconsciously part of what we want. But living as as generosity, as love has the support of the celestial realm, has the support of the of all the unseen beings, you know, and I can't say enough about the miracles that have happened in my life through, through service, you know, Mm -hmm. I've shared the story in the podcast a million times now, but I'm just going to quickly touch base on it. I remember I had a vision of, of, of the Saint Amma, Amma uh, from the South of India. When I was like contemplating taking my life and aliving myself. And I had a vision of her. um, It was very, very vivid in my mind's eye. Mm -hmm. And she said, if you want this to be gone, go be of service. If you want these these feelings and these thoughts to lift, go be of service. And I said, serve what? I have nothing. I can't even, I don't even have the will to live right now. Yeah. 
So it took me a moment to kind of arrive at a place where, again, the brown paper bags with the mantras and the sandwiches and playing Krishna Das mantras and chanting the mantras and making the sandwiches and chanting the mantras and making the sandwiches and writing the mantras, doing it kind of like, like the intention was to help other people. The intention was to help myself, but it wasn't, it wasn't still, it, there was, there wasn't this sort of full body, genuine to it because it was so hard for me to even get myself to that place of doing that. But delivering the sandwiches later that afternoon to this on this park where where uh, people who are coming out of correctional facilities are dropped mm-hmm. off, um, dropping off the sandwiches to them, I have to say that the cloud of depression, of ideation, of unalive yourself, it start it didn't fully live lift completely but i had a little bit of sunshine coming in now mm. there was just a little bit of space where this where i was like oh shit the sun is always there shining okay you know what i mean oh so i'm so glad that you brought up this this uh, experience because it leads to something i wanted to say when you first talked about you know this this question of of having feelings and judgments and opinions about other people's lack of consciousness mm-hmm. and and we talked about being exemplars being luminaries just by doing what we do and I think well okay you have this big podcast you're a teacher you teach at Omega you have a big voice mm-hmm. I have written a bunch of books I have a big voice but but people who are listening might be going well wait a minute I who am I? I don't have, nobody's looking at me. How can I be an exemplar? And I hear this a lot. Like, what is mine to do? You know, if I don't have a clear calling that this is my dharma, this is my, my sacred work in the world. You know, and I think about Jewish um, mystical wisdom. Kabbalah says that we're all imprinted from the day we're born with what is ours to do and be and offer in this world to to mend the brokenness it's called mm. tikkun olam to mend the broken world to to repair the world and it's usually hidden in plain sight because it's just right there but we have these ideas that everyone has to be a sa or a mirabai or you know some activist who's chaining herself to the to the gates of the pentagon in order to be an effective voice for change and and it's not true. What is yours to do and be? And and even if you're broken, even if you're neurotic, which we all, every single one of us are, including all our teachers. That's you right. Know, <laughs> you're not fully cooked. Whatever your version of a fully ripened spiritual being is, probably not going to ever get there. That's the patri- patriarchy, if you'll forgive me, that's given us this idea that there's some perfected being we're supposed to be before we can you know, be of effective service in this world. It's just, I mean, look at you. You were on the verge of of taking your life and you mm-hmm. still stepped up. It wasn't like suddenly you were cured because you weren't broken. You were just having a human experience, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and we're all having one and, and we can't wait. We can't afford to wait mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to be all better. The wounded healers are the the most blessed healers i think me too i love that language the wounded healers are the most blessed healers it's so true and i feel like also you know we help those with with our like it's turning our 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 mess into our message it's turning our pain into our dharma it's really um you know taking the time to to really be with our with the parts of ourselves that we are ashamed of that we that we hate, that we're scared of. Mm-hmm. And then I think it opens up to, to a conversation about paradox. It's like, can you receive the good news that you're going on a trip f- with your job, a trip that you've always wanted, why you realize that your mom has cancer again and it's stage four this time. And then also simultaneously, your kid just got you know, nominated as the kindest kid in, in middle school <laughs> and, and your husband just made you pancakes for breakfast. And then you walk into the grocery store and there's someone having a mental breakdown. Like arriving at a point that you can hold all things, right? Like paradox has become such a deep foundational word for my 
for what I share with people. And it's, it's, it's opened me up to grace. It's taken up to this year. We're in 2022, everybody. I'm 10 years into my path. This is the year that I've arrived at understanding that these contradictory good and bad, happy and sad, you know, grieving and grateful could all coexist together. They don't have to take away from each other. Can you speak to that? Because I think once we embody paradox, we're then able to have a morning in one hour, everything that I shared, all of this stuff happened in one hour. And you still have to go to the grocery store to get milk because you're younger, you're, you're, one of your kids is going to, you know, needs something for, 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 for class. So you're at, quickly at the supermarket getting some things for them. And how can you still show up with kindness to the cashier register? who has a whole life, a whole, a whole, you know, paradigm of unfulfilled prayers, of, of missed opportunities, of regrets, of sorrows, of inspiration and successes, you know, like, oh, living as paradox has, has brought me enormous peace. Can you speak to that? Oh, that was such a beautiful riff. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh my God. When you compliment me, I'm like, stop it. <laughs> oh my God. I'm so honored to hear that you're, yeah. Anyways, please it's take it away, my love. Okay. Well, you know, that's the heart of my work. I would say is, is just praising paradox as the opening to truth. You know, the mystics of all spiritual traditions seem to speak the language of paradox not the fundamentalists of the world's religions, but the mystics who have way more in common with each other across the spiritual traditions than the mystics and the fundamentalists of their own Mm -hmm. religion have in common. Um, Because the mystics understand that it is only through paradox that we can tell the truth. And so it it is the wound that is the cure for the wound, as Rumi always said in so many different ways. It is the grieving that breaks our hearts open to the gratitude that is present in everything, including the brokenness. Mm -hmm. And when we show up at the grocery store because our kids need something and we've had that entire range of the human experience already in that one day, and that person who's checking us out has had their whole human experience and you can see it in their face and you can feel it in their vibe, And they may or may not be nice to us. (laughs) They may be a grumpy bitch. Mm -hmm. And how do we stay present with our hearts open? Because we're all sharing the paradox of the human experience right now. Um, How? I mean, I don't know about you, but there's so many times when I have shown up for a a grumpy person who was being rude Mm -hmm. with just a modicum of kindness in my face and in my voice and, and it shifted right before my eyes. So mm-hmm. it does take fortitude and courage as a brave heart, as you said, to keep showing up for the, for the whole catastrophe. The, what is Zorba the Greek call it? The full catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got it. You know, all of us, we've got mm-hmm. it. Don't sell yourself short and think that you're just too tired and too broken to be mm-hmm. able to be love as you, as you say, Sa, and as Ramdas mm-hmm. said, it's mm-hmm. not beyond any of our capacity to, mm-hmm. to make ourselves available as, mm-hmm. as conduits for that love, as expressions of that, of that love. It's not romantic. It's not sentimental. And it's, it's um, powerful, it's potent, it's the most demanding work of all, but it, we're fully up to it, all of us, is my, mm-hmm. my sense. There's, mm-hmm. it, it's not an elitist state. Mm-hmm. I love that. And for people who are, who, who are like just listening to your sweet voice and they're like, oh my God, I love everything. You know, she's saying, how did you come about being so wise? I mean, I've learned a lot about your story um, through Wild Mercy, but for those who are not familiar, like what cracked you open to to God, to the mystery, to the divine, to the saints and sages? And 
you know? How did you arrive at this place? And you shared earlier that you grew up in a very progressive, you know, home, that, that there was mysticism in there, you know, through the Jewish tradition. Uh, God was there um, through, the, through the Jewish tradition. And I say oftentimes it's one of three ways that we come on a path. Either we have hippie parents, you know, not my case, or you're bored, not my case, or through pain. That was my case. Um, what was it for you, my darling? Yes, pain, death. Um, just to be clear, my parents were not uh, religious at all. Okay. God was not, there was no talk of God in our household. Ah, okay. None. Um, but they were deeply spiritual people, mm-hmm. still are. You know, for my mom, it's it's nature. Nature is the holiest thing. She feels a deep connection to the cosmos, to what she calls spirit, but mm-hmm. she would never name it God. My parents really rebelled against the whole Judeo-Christian construct of of the of God. Okay. Personified being. So I had to rebel and um fall in love with God in every form and every religion I ever encountered. And I'm still that way. I'm still that way. I just, I'm hopelessly um, drawn to religion at its deepest core. But like you, and like so many of you who are listening, pain, death, in my case, particularly death. So Mm -hmm. there were three, I would say, there were three most significant deaths in a lifetime of dozens of deaths of close people. And I've ended up spending a lot of time at the bedside of people who are dying, probably just because of all this experience with death and the way that it has grown the garden of my heart, really. Mm -hmm. But the first one was my my 10-year-old brother when I was seven who died of, of cancer, brain tumor. And that was the place where, you know, when you're seven, you're already still, you already have at least one foot in the door of mystery of the other side that you came from. But it really pulled off whatever veil might have been starting to fall into place in this human uh, incarnation (laughs) over Mm -hmm. here. And then when I was 14, my first love, Philip, died in in a gun accident here in rural northern New Mexico. And that was it. That was the one that really broke me open to a spiritual path because I had nowhere else to turn. Nothing else spoke to the vastness, to the to the vastness of the shattering, to the immensity of uh, emotional experience I was having. And also, Philip's death kind of catapulted me into an altered state of consciousness that, you know, those, those of you who are psychologists might identify as a traumatic response of dissociation. But for me, it expressed itself as this draw to meditation, to yoga, to spiritual experience, that those altered state experiences were much more real and meaningful to me than any ordinary kind of teenage life that I could otherwise um, be interested in. So that was really what started me on my path. Mm-hmm. And um, there were many other deaths along the way, but I would say the the next big shift in my spiritual life was when my 14-year-old daughter, Jenny, was killed in a car accident in mm-hmm. 2001 when I was 40. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I remember the story of Jenny. Yeah, thank you, Sa. Mm-hmm. Saying her name. Yeah, death is, um, I've started to explore death um, and explore, you know, the grief process and, and it's so inevitable. It's like the one event that we're all invited to, but we don't know when it is and what do we wear. And, you know, we just, we have no idea, but the invitation is, is there on your door, you know, at some point it's going to you know, fall and it's your, your calling. What can you share with us from working with the dying and those who are grieving that you've learned? Um, because one thing that I've realized too, it's that the more present we are, the more actually arrive at this place of, of like deep connection with the poetry of seeing the leaves dance in the wind, feeling the sun kiss my skin, you know, like, the more I arrive at that place where I see beauty and decay, 
I realized that we're constantly in a state of loss, yeah. that life is actually a losing game. And, and and how do we find beauty in this constant state of 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 death and decay and destruction? And that's just the, the nature of this reality that we're in, you know? By <clears throat> by living, by by spending time with the dying and by spending time with with the with the ones who are grieving, mourning the death. What have you learned about that state of like constantly being at a loss? So kind of like it's twofold question, actually. What can we learn from the dying? What can we learn from the the, the ones who are mourning the death of, of those who passed? And then how does that bridge to this grief that's always around? You know, that's like it's I, I'm I'm starting to call it what the Buddha called the second suffering, suffering of change. I'm starting to call the suffering of change grief, you know, in my own work, in my own approach. Because I realize that I'm constantly grieving, constantly, you know, like it's just literally the background noise that it starts sometimes to become a symphony, starts sometimes to become a hymn, an angelic hymn. But it, it took me a while to realize that that sadness was actually informing how alive I am, Yeah, that that grief was informing the depth of my love, you know. But so speak to this, my love. Thank you so much, by the way. You just said it all. And I'll, I'll just do my best to um, offer a counterpoint or harmony to what you so beautifully said. It's, I, I think the trick is to not see grief as a problem to be solved or an illness to be cured, but as sacred uh, ground to be fully inhabited. Mm-hmm. And that in the very depths of the sorrow and the, and the loss and the um, change, the inevitability of change, even when it feels way too soon, as it did for me with the deaths of not one, not two, but three beloved children in my life, you know, that was too soon by any, any mm-hmm. conventional standards. And yet... Even in that, the the space that that shattering opened in my heart was, is, felt like, and has proven to be the most sacred space I've ever known. And this is the secret. Like, this is the thing that people don't want to talk about because it sounds shameful almost. Like, how could you possibly admit that in the depths of your deepest sorrow, they're, they're the presence of naked, intimate beauty and love filled every, every broken, mm-hmm. open space. Sound, it could, you could, we used the term spiritual bypassing earlier. I remember when Jenny died and, and a dear friend who was a Qigong teacher called me to express his, their, um, condolences and I felt like I trusted them enough to be able to confess this because they were a spiritual teacher of sorts that you know this is there's something incredibly magical and beautiful going on here I don't know how to explain it but there is and Mm -hmm. that person said to me god Mirabai you know you're dissociating you're not letting yourself feel your feelings you need to just really allow yourself to you know, be traumatized and sad. And, and I'm kind of worried about you, Mirabai. I was like, oh, forget that. That wasn't a safe place to, to admit this, you know, basically they were in, you know, accusing me of, of spiritual bypass dissociation, but that's not what was happening. Mm -hmm. I know that's not what was happening. And Mm -hmm. I know it still, and I see it over and over again in the, in the grieving people that I sit with. Mm-hmm. Was, I am in the when I'm sitting with a grieving person, I can tell that I am in the presence of this naked, intimate holiness, and mm-hmm. they know it too. If especially when I allow them to be there with it, and mm-hmm. the same thing with a dying person, it's exquisitely um, present. Like the the sense of presence of being present together is like nothing else I've ever known, except maybe being present for a birth has a very Mm -hmm. similar 
flavor and and that changes everything so you ask like how did i get this way you said wise i would dispute that <laughs> characterization um but how did i get this way where i'm so um interested in the sacred landscape of mm-hmm. grief and loss and death and dying just from deciding very gently tenderly to be with it to be present as you say mm-hmm. you know when when jenny died it was you know i had years and years of mindfulness practice at that point um you know i studied vipassana at a very young age and all kinds of other meditation um, practices and they were there available for me to me but i wasn't interested i was interested in letting myself down into the arms of the fire itself not trying to mindfulness my way through it not trying to prove that i could show up for this difficult thing because i had all the this you know all these tools in my spiritual toolbox i showed up in the fire because a i didn't see anywhere else i'd rather be than just right there in the middle of it but b and much more important than a i showed up as an act of love and devotion to my beloved to my child that's why I did it. Not because it was a spiritual practice and I was a great practitioner. Mm-hmm. It was love, love, mm-hmm. love, love. That's the only thing I care about. <laughs> oh, that's so beautiful, Mirabai. Thank you. And, you know, this leads me to, because through these really deep heartbreaks, like we open ourselves up to the mystery, to the great mystery, to the, to the mystical. Can you share with us a mystical experience? And, everything's fair game, you know? We are not looking for, um, you know, I often say people think I want them to share the story that the Black Madonna was in their dining table. Yeah. If that's happened, honey, please let me know. I need to know the details. But, you know, whatever story may be, I asked a question like this to a, to a friend who was on the show recently, and he shared a story about aliens that came to visit him in, in Sedona. Uh, at the top of a mountain there. So whatever you consider mystical, um, please share with us a story. Mm, thank you. So, well, I am definitely not the kind of person that has flashy, otherworldly, supernatural experiences. I'm very, I'm a very ordinary person, very grounded. Uh, I think I'm a Taurus. I'm in my body. I'm, um, I love, you know, beauty and pleasure and uh, all of the kind of ordinary things of this life. To me, that's where the holiness lies. In fact, I'm, I'm writing a new book now called Ordinary Mysticism that is precisely about this. The, the subtitle is Your Life is Holy Ground. So, mm. um, you know, I grew up with a lot of esoteric stuff around me. I said my my parents weren't religious, but but everyone around us, including my parents, were interested in esoteric stuff, you know, card reading and and all kinds of um um like supernatural phenomena. Mm-hmm. But that was the 70s too, you know, and there was a lot of a lot of interest in reading minds and auras and all that stuff. So that's just never been interesting to me. I'm much more interested in the powerful connection that's happening between you and me. And I hope is inviting in all of your listeners to join us in this, in this magical heart space that we're weaving together. This to me is the heart of, of what it is to have a mystical experience. So what's a mystical experience? It's an experience of direct, um, felt presence of the sacred by whatever name or lack of a name that you give to it. And mm-hmm. so for me, it's through every day. I live on the edge of national forest here in New Mexico. Every day I get into the mountains, which happen to be burning right now. New Mexico's on fire and it's very painful. And that to me is a mystical experience. Okay. Here's one. A few days ago, maybe a week ago, we were, my husband Gangaras and I were sitting outside having coffee and feeling that the mountains around us were in great danger and all the animals. I was like, what's happening to the animals? I love animals so much. Mm-hmm. Where are they going? What, you know, are they okay? Are they dying? Are they fleeing? 
and he had just seen a, a herd of elk the day before on our on our road. Well, it's a dirt road, but still, mm -hmm. they, they don't usually come here. And we saw a magpie, you know, those beautiful, deep black and white birds. They're very dramatic looking. And they're part of the corvid families, like ravens and crows, so they're very smart. And they were feeding their babies in this big, beautiful nest, kind of five feet away from us. And there was this beautiful, you talked about that paradox, huh? mm -hmm. there was this beautiful paradox of the buffalo shootings had just happened, by the way, and and the, and our beautiful mountains are on fire, and um, there's some stuff going on in our own family that's very painful. It was all of that, and then this tenderness of the birds, of the bird, mama bird feeding the babies, and them all just peeping, peeping. And then the next day, I was mm -hmm. teaching a class online right here at my computer where I am with you now, and I heard all this squawking, squawking, squawking. An hour and a half, I had to sit and be present for this class. When I walked back outside, there was a massacre. The baby birds had been killed by some predator, and there there were feathers and blood all over the the path. Oh, my God. Underneath this nest. That, how do I say this, uh, this isn't probably the inspiring story that you all might have been looking for. That, to me, was a mystical experience. Mm -hmm. My heartbreak was so intense and so tender that it broke me open to this place where the, I, my heart suddenly had the capacity that it didn't have the day before mm -hmm. to hold the pain of the whole world like the mother, like the great mother. Mm -hmm. Why, why not? There's no, I have nothing else to lose. It's mm -hmm. all so fucked up and terrible and painful. And I have nothing to lose by just letting it all in. Mm -hmm. Like, like Mary would, who's another Jewish mother who lost a child, just like me. Like, mm -hmm. let's just gather it all into our arms right now. Mm -hmm. And in that little, small, reluctant, yes, was a mystical moment of communion with the sacred. Mm -hmm. Look, I'm a Enneagram four. I can't help it. It's like my path to God is often through pain. That is so beautiful. And thank you. Cause I think we need to normalize the path to God being through pain. Mm -hmm. And, and I think there's such a, there is such a big movement within the, uh, personal development. I don't want to call it spiritual because it's so not spiritual, but I, so I'm kind of drawing the line between personal development versus the spiritual path. But I think people say, no, I'm a spiritual, I'm spiritual. But it's this, this, this constant desire for peak experiences yeah. for always feeling good for always being yeah. surrounded by everything. That's the most exuberant and, 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 you know, and glittery and glamorous and beautiful. And, and that is just not human life. You know, that is just not the spiritual path. And I think you illustrate that so beautifully. Thank you, Sa. And let's just also say that those experiences of showing up for painful life events, not turning away, increases our capacity for wonder and joy or it does for me mm -hmm. i do not walk around morose and somber and grim you know because i've had all these painful experiences that is not not my experience of myself or other people's experience of me i am a joyful childlike being and all of these painful experiences have have opened my ability to experience great joy in the most ordinary moments uh, whether it's making a salad or making love or or picking up a grandchild from ballet it all of those things make me ridiculously happy mm -hmm. i love that you said that and that ties into your new book you know mystical and the ordinary or the holy in the in the ordinary um it's I think instead of us seeking to have peak experiences and, and denying pain and denying suffering and denying the suffering that's happening all around us, it goes back to what we spoke about earlier. I think it when we when we kind of 
you know, see the self as the other and, and our suffering as part of the collective suffering and stop denying that we are all grieving constantly. And it's not to a peak experience that you're going to um, eradicate and delete the grief, but it's to actually walking towards the grief. It's to actually be in that space and, and breathe in that space and dance in that space and speak to that space and welcome that space, right? Yes. It's through that that then the, the lens shifts. The view of, of, of disturbing emotions changes. You know, we go from duality to enter into that third, third truth of non-duality where things just are. You know, as Mark Nepo says, the, his, I love his work, a poet. I, yeah. He says, the same way that decay is to, na- that suffering is to human beings, pain is to human beings as, as decay is to nature. Mm-hmm. And I love unpacking that regularly to kind of, you know, test my, my level of relaxation, my level of connection to the present moment. Mm-hmm. Because when I could see grace in chaos, when I can see order in confusion, um, I arrive at this place where it's nonverbal. Yeah. It's just this deep heart open space where words lack capacity, where concepts have no purpose in that space. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just so uh, beyond um, beyond our, our capacity to convey. I think that's why art comes in. That I think that's why there's yeah. the dance and and all the all their artistic expressions to convey that space, you know. Um, so I think what I'm saying, I just want a little rent there. I think what I'm saying is like instead of us seeking peak experiences on the spiritual path, um, we the 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 transformation will happen when we lean into the suffering and the pain and and start to meet God and the divine when we're washing dishes, yeah. you know, when we are. Um, taking a bath when we are walking the forest, when we are sitting with a friend who needs our, our help. And um, yeah, does that make sense? I went in a little bit of random, like, did that make sense? Sometimes yeah. I'm like, was that great? Or did I not make any sense? <laughs> That's exactly what I'm talking about. You just named it. I think we all know that. And it's such a relief to hear each other say it out loud. That we're not, we don't need to, you know, we have these ideas of these gurus and these holy people who have had these incredible experiences and woke up. You know, I don't know about you, but that's how I I was, I came of age with all of these stories of saints, mostly from India, but, you know, also other traditions. And I, I kept thinking I had to be a Nanda Maima, you know, to to be valid, <laughs> to count, to, to be legit. And, and what you are saying and what I'm trying to say now is no friends we just have to be fully who we are as human as we can be and show up for each other in the midst of of this whole thing as as what what Ramdas called loving rocks because it's it's hard it's hard out mm-hmm. there and you can be a loving rock just exactly the way you are yeah it's more than enough perfect this leads me to ask you about forgiveness. Can you talk to me about the role of forgiveness on your own life and in the lives of your students and your in your art? Mm, it's funny you said in my art because I, I find that writing for me is a beautiful spiritual practice. It's not just a way to say stuff or even get to know my myself or work work things out, you know. Mm-hmm. It's it the alchemy. It's alchemy. Mm. And so often I have been able to forgive myself and others through just free writing, just like giving myself a topic, go, you know, just write without stopping for a period of time and just let it come out. And then often I will be able to shape that into a beautiful piece of writing later. Mm -hmm. It's not like one or the other. It's not just throwing up on paper or on the computer, you know, it's, it's allowing this thing to flow through. And then, you know, Michelangelo said, How, oh, what did he say? I, I saw the angel in the marble and then I carved until I set, set it free. So you can write the, your way through these things. And then 
shape it into the offering that you want to make to yourself or others. And mm-hmm. so it's been it's been a, very helpful for me. Also, I found that sometimes when I just show up and do the work on myself gently and tenderly and with as much self-love as I can muster, my old resentments just fall away. You know, I was terribly um, violated by a false spiritual teacher when I was a teenager. And that and it lasted for many years, the relationship. And I when I left, I could have been completely just um, undone and nobody and nothing and because he had taken it all from me. But it, that's not the way it was. It was like I just moved on. I just went on with my life, recognizing what had happened to me and saying yes to my life going forward. And then years later, when he finally died, um, I didn't care anymore. I didn't care about what he had done. I didn't care that he died. Like I thought it would be a big relief or release or something. It was just kind of nothing. And that to me is a good sign that I had worked with it. I had metabolized it. I had shown up for it. I had neither identified as, as the victim, nor had I pushed it away and pretended it didn't happen. I just kind of lived with it and worked with it and wrote through it. Wow. so much. Thank you for speaking to that. And for everyone who's listening, would you say that forgiveness is a vital part of the path? You know, in the Jewish tradition, which is my ancestral tradition, which, as I mentioned, my parents rejected, but which I have embraced as one of my traditions, by the way. <laughs> There's in the, in the fall, you know, in the high holy day season, um, we do this practice of teshuva of returning, turning and returning to Shuva. Um, and that in, in Christianity, it's, it's Lent. And I think every tradition has some version of making amends. And as part of that process, we, we also turn to the parts of ourselves that, as you said earlier, have shame and self-hatred and all of those places. And we do Teshuva. We do conscious inventory of our resentments and our guilt and we we ask the holy one for to meet us and in that time it says that the gates are are more open and there's more access than ever in the rest of the time during this 10-day period of the 10 days of awe they call it for the holy one to help lift those burdens so it's this co-creative process like Mm. yes i will show up to really name the places where I feel that I've been violated, betrayed, damaged, and hurt, and also the places where I have done harm. I will be present. I will look at it squarely. You know, I will face face it and breathe into it, and I will offer my amends, and I will attempt to release and forgive. Mm -hmm. So it really helps to have, I guess what I'm trying to say, to have rituals. You don't have to be Jewish. You don't have to be Christian. But to find, you can invent. We're we're worthy of inventing our own holy rituals. Mm. Create ways to name those things, to bless them, and to release them if you can. Yes, I do feel that it's very helpful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. I feel it's like a for me was has been and continues to be like a vital part of the path, you know. Um, just the letting go, you know, making making peace with the past so I can be fully present. Um, I want to ask you about wild mercy. Hmm. And can you share one of your favorite stories? And I know it's kind of like sigh, you can't say that. I wrote the entire book filled with these epic stories of all these female mystics. And everybody who's who's looking for a book that reawakens the our our reawakens in our heart, you know, I feel like we've we've been stripped away from female mystics. We're constantly looking up to the gurus and the teachers. We're all men, 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 men. But this book brought back the comfort of a of, of a mother into my heart, mm-hmm. into my life. And and it tells it tells, I mean, I'll let you speak to it. But the impact that that book had, it opened me up to get, you know, 
the Virgin Mary tattooed on my body, honey. I don't know if a lot of you have seen it because I'm always, you know, mostly wearing clothes. Uh, but it's a big tattoo on the on the left side of my of my body, you know. And all of you guys know that I also have the big green tar on my on my forearm, uh, on my left arm. So I think for me, one big realization that's come through from reading Wild Mercy was that I needed the female female mystics. I need them. I need the warmth of a mother. I need you know the divinity that's that's spoken through through a through a female mystic. Um, mm. Can you speak to that and and that book and perhaps you know share one of your favorite stories? Mm. Oh, what a beautiful thing to hear that that touched you in that way. So yeah, it's it's whether you or not you had a good experience with your own mother, a good relationship with your own mother. Sometimes people tell me, you know, I can't conceive of a divine mother because my own mother was just not motherly and not present. In fact, she hurt me or my mom was just fine. So I don't need a divine mother. It doesn't matter what your relationship was with your mother. We could all benefit from the presence of this unconditionally yet fiercely truth telling divine mother uh, to, you know, to have access to that space of, of protectiveness and outrageousness and voluptuousness and all of the things that that divine mother embodies. So to cultivate that consciously is, is something I think that will help shift everything in the world. You know, that, that million, how was, how many? 140 million. million? (laughs) (laughs) Help with the 140 million shift. Um, so let's see, what would be a good story? You know, I've spent my life immersed in these mystics. So my favorite mystic, probably, or the one I feel closest to, is Santa Teresa de Avila, St. Teresa of Avila. And she was a 16th century Spanish nun who actually uh, came from a Jewish family. They were conversos that were forced to convert to Christianity by the Spanish Inquisition or be exiled or executed. And so she was first generation Christian in her family, but she still, I felt, carried a lot of her Jewishness in her soul. But um, one of the things that I love about Teresa is that she was spiritually sassy, sa, like you. She talked back to God. She didn't put up with any shit from God. There was this one story, in fact, where you know, she was um, busy reforming the entire Carmelite order, returning it to its basic contemplative values. It had strayed into, like the whole Catholic Church, into pomp and circumstance and nothing to do with connection to God. So she was doing this reform movement and traveling by by donkey cart all over Sp- the rugged Spanish countryside and w- to found monasteries and convents that were dedicated to contemplative prayer. But she was also a dancer and she was beautiful and she was funny and her convents weren't just grim places of silent prayer. They were places of great rejoicing and celebration. But there was one time where they came to a river and it was very full because it was spring and there was snow melt that had swollen the river. And they decided they were going to just forge ahead and, and try to cross this this river where normally it was low enough that they could cross with their donkeys and their carts. And it was just too intense and the carts uh, tipped over and all their provisions were washed away, which was a big deal because there was a lot of poverty and lack of resources and, and to lose all their provisions was, was really a disaster. So Teresa slogged over through the river, you know, in her habit and flung herself at the base of a tree and just looked up and said, God, what, what, you know, what do you, what do you have in mind here? You want me to do this, this thing for you. I can feel that you want me to be, you know, a, a, an agent of change in our spiritual community. And then you do this What you know, what's up. And she heard the voice say to her, my daughter, this is a sign of my love for you and, and my friendship. And her response was, well, no wonder you don't, you don't have very many friends. No. Or, or a time when she was levitating, which she was famous for. And she found herself in the middle of, you know, a busy church um, ceremony and that she was three feet off the ground. And she saw she looked down and saw it and she said, put me down right out loud and plop. You know, she was put down, but she just didn't. 
She didn't put up with shit from anybody, not even God. Ah, I love this so much. What are provisions, by the way? Oh, just food and mostly food. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Well, it's been such a joy, my dear. Thank you so much. I I feel like talk to you. Yeah, exactly. Talk to you forever. Uh, Last question before we go. What does it mean to you to be spiritually sassy? Oh, if I could take an iota of inspiration from St. Teresa of Avila and you saw, that would be a great joy for me, you know, to, I think what it means is that my whole good girl construct, that even in the counterculture, I was conditioned to carry, um, to just let it go now. And there are no rules that bind me anymore except for the rules of the heart, of love, of authentic love. And that is going to reveal itself as I go. I can't know. To be spiritually sassy to me is to be fine with not knowing and to respond from that place. Oh, my God. Thank you. Whoa, that was incredible. Thank you so much, my love. Truly honored and grateful for this time together. Thank you for all the work you you do. And I hope I come to New Mexico at some point and I get to meet you in person and we get to dance and practice and eat and do all the things. Mm, it has been such a joy. I've done many of these in my life, but this is just about my favorite being with you today and all of you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Peace, love. See y'all so soon. Mwah. I'm Sadi Simone, and you've been listening to the Spiritually Sassy Show. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and reveal this podcast. And join me next Sunday for another Spiritually Sassy Conversation. Thank you so much for listening and I love you.